The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I am really hopeful that your summer's off to a good start. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I got to spend some time in Nashville. A good friend of mine uh, is on sabbatical right now, and he asked me if I would mind coming and spending a weekend there and teaching at their services over the weekend. And so I did that to help him out. And it just like brought me back to uh, the childhood church where I grew up. Because I, I, I walked in on Sunday morning, it's early, and there's all of this luggage like in the hallway. And what it was, was that a bunch of kids were about to leave that morning to go to camp. So they had brought all their luggage inside and they were going to go to Bible class and then they were going to the worship service and then the bus would come and they would all leave for camp. And I used to love the summer when I was a kid at my church, especially when I was a teenager, an adolescent, because we spent, I spent most of the summer when I was a teenager at my church. And we had a large youth group, so every summer we would have like seven to ten college interns come and run all of our summer programs. And the week pretty much went like this. Like on Monday, Monday night, we had Bible study. We studied the Bible a lot. And Tuesdays, we went to uh, downtown Atlanta and we put on basically like a VBS every Tuesday and Thursday for several hours. Then we'd come back and hang out with the interns. On Wednesday, we did that very same thing, but at our church and women uh, from a local uh, homeless shelter for abused women would come and we would take care of their kids all day. And then on Wednesday night, we had another Bible study. And on Fridays, we had two separate Bible studies. One was for girls and one was for boys. And they were breakfast Bible studies and somebody was really sharp and named both of those Exodus. I didn't come up with a name. And then Sunday morning, we did the whole thing over again. And that wasn't very odd for me because the church of my youth, the church where I grew up, our denomination, we really cared a lot about the Bible and knowing the Bible and knowing what was in the Bible and where it was. I mean, how many of you, how many of you grew up doing something like what we call them sword drills? And what it was was in Bible class, the teacher would give you a Bible verse and you had your your actual physical Bible. There was no internet. Um, And we had to like flip to it to see who could find it the fastest, right? Because that's how you prove that you really love God. And as I got older, there are these like Bible bowl where they would take a book of the Bible and you would have to learn all of the ins and outs of this book, like the most minute detail about who, what, when, where, all of these things. And then after doing the studying for about four to five months, they would get all the other kids from all the other churches in your area together. And for a weekend, like you would take test to see which team knew the most, and then that's how you won Bible Bowl. You got like some ribbon or and I don't know, like the other kids like left in shame, I guess, like if you don't know very much of the Bible, but that's, that's who we were. And I took my Bible classes when I was a kid, like those, those were serious. Like they had 
homework and stuff that you had to know and you needed to know. We had to learn all of the books of the Bible in order. We had to know that little song that you sang, which I still to this day sing in my head to remember where things are. We took all that seriously. And there was a part of it that was a little extreme that kind of bumped into worshiping the Bible at some times, or at least worshiping some particular interpretations of the Bible. But on the whole, I'm really grateful for it. Like I I went off to college and I knew the scriptures. I knew not just the overarching story, but what those stories really were about, what was driving all of that. And then after I finished college, a couple of years later, I went to seminary. And when I went to seminary, uh, I went to study homiletics, which is the fancy word for preaching. But they make you take Bible classes anyway, because I guess they want you to have something to preach. And when I go in to those very first Bible classes in seminary, things didn't seem to be the way that I taught, was taught that they were. So one of my first courses was an Old Testament survey course. And so you start with Genesis and go all the way up through Malachi. And I had been taught in my church the same thing that most of us were probably taught which is those first five books of the Bible, that's called the Pentateuch. And everyone who reads the Pentateuch knows who wrote the Pentateuch. It was Moses. But in class, they started talking about this thing called documentary hypothesis theory. And so there were these really smart German theologians that said, like, when you actually read these five books, um, one person uses the word Jehovah to talk about God. And then later you find out that Jehovah isn't actually a real word. Like, it's just made up because there's no Y in the German language. And there's another person that when they're writing about God in the Pentateuch uses the term Elohim for God. And there's this other stuff that doesn't read like those first two at all. And that's this term called Deuteronomistic history, which is just history of what happened. And then there's this other section that's just about what priests do. And it doesn't read like the first three at all. And that's just the priestly code. And so really smart, devoted people have said, looks like four different people, or at least four different schools of people actually wrote the Pentateuch. And then how do you figure Moses writes all of the Pentateuch, especially the parts that were written after he died? And then I started having to read the Bible and Hebrew and Greek. And what was translated here, because the guys who got together to translate the King James Version made this decision, and some other people made this other decision, that it wasn't as simple as all of that. And all the things that I had learned 
like in Bible class and VBS, they didn't seem to be the way that they were when I was in Bible class and VBS. And some of you know exactly what that's like. And you, you didn't have to go to seminary to figure that out. You were just bumping along in life. And someone had said something to you, you had learned something one way, you had encountered the scriptures in a particular way, you were from a particular denomination and something happened and it didn't seem to be the way that they said it was. And there was just more going on. And then, and then what, do you, what do you do with all of that? I mean, so there, there are a couple of options. Like there are a few options. Some people kind of run into that roadblock and they decide, well, we just need to scrap the whole thing because it wasn't the same thing that I was taught when I was eight years old, then it can't possibly be true. And then for others of us, it's like someone just dumped out a puzzle on the floor and we looked at the picture and we tried to put this puzzle together, but the pieces didn't match the picture. And so we said that the, the picture must be right and I must always be wrong. And then others of us decided maybe the task here is to try to put all this together by being more loyal to the pieces than the picture. There was a French philosopher who lived in the last century named Paul Ricoeur. And Ricoeur worked a lot with what has come to be known as the hermeneutics of suspicion. And he says, everybody, it doesn't matter if you're reading the Bible, it doesn't matter what, as long as you live long enough, this will happen to you. That you enter into life, you start out in life with what he calls the first naivete. It's like the world, I accept the world as it was presented to me without any questions, that that must be the way it is. But then everyone, if you live long enough, like hits a crisis. And the crisis sounds like someone you prayed for dying or an important relationship or marriage falling apart. The crisis sounds like I want to have a baby, but I can't. And suddenly life doesn't seem like the church said that it seemed like. And so Ricoeur says like that's when people get stuck. And that, that may be you. Like you've opened up the Bible and the pieces don't match for you. And you're just stuck. And there are other people, and this may be you too, that you just kind of thrown out the whole thing. Like it doesn't match up with the way that you see the world, what you understand about the world right now. So this very seventh grade understanding of the Bible that you have been handed, like doesn't work in the real world. And so you just chunk it all. But Rakur says if you work your way through it and you study, you learn, and you actually ask questions and good questions, then you come to what he calls the second naivete, where you understand how to read and see what's actually going on and the intent behind a text, the intent behind the Bible. And so what most people call that process, 
is deconstruction. And it sounds really academic and kind of a big term, but it's not. It's only when you have received something a particular way and you begin to rethink it. You take the pieces apart so that you can honestly and with integrity put it back together the way that it should have been put back together. Because a lot of people, even folks who show up in worship week to week, have decided, I don't really trust the Bible. When the parts that rub me the wrong way come up, I just ignore it. And we, we all have this tendency to open up the scriptures and take what we want and leave the rest because that's actually easier than to uncover what the scriptures are actually doing. So if you've been around Ecclesia this summer, you know that we've been walking through some women in Christian history who have been exemplars of the faith, who have been very thoughtful people, who point us to God in a particular way. And one of those people for me has been this woman, Barbara Brown Taylor. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest, an author. She has been named one of the most influential preaching voices in the English-speaking language twice, and I've still yet to figure out who to pay off so I can get on that list. But when I was in school, I had to read this little book by Barbara Brown Taylor called The Preaching Life. And I know that right now you are all getting out your phone to get on Amazon and order a copy of The Preaching Life. It's a widely popular book. But in it, she talks about her own process of understanding what the Bible is doing. And not just for herself, but for her parishioners and for her students. And she has been in so many ways a light for me in understanding what God is up to and what do I do with this book that can oftentimes be complicated and hard to understand and spans centuries of time. And how do we do that in a way that is helpful and hopeful and wholesome? This is what she writes in The Preaching Life. She says, for all the human handiwork it displays, the Bible remains a peculiarly holy book. I cannot think of any other text that has such authority over me, interpreting me faster than I can interpret it. It speaks to me, not with the stuffy voice of some mummified sage, but with the fresh, lively tones of someone who knows what happened to me an hour ago. Familiar passages accumulate meaning as I return to them again and again. They seem to grow during my absences from them. I am always finding something new in them I never found before, something designed to meet me where I am at this particular moment in time. This is, I believe, why we call the Bible God's living word. When I think about consulting a medical book thousands of years old for some insight into my health, or an equally ancient physics book for some help 
with my cosmology, I understand what a strange and unparalleled claim the Bible has on me. Age does not diminish its power, but increases it. When I recognize my life in its pages, when I am convinced that this story is my story, then I am lifted out of my own time and space and set free, liberated by the knowledge that my oddly shaped piece of life is not a fluke, but it fits into a much larger and more reliable puzzle. In other words, I am not an orphan. I have a community, a history, a future, a God. The Bible is my birth certificate and my family tree, but it is more. It is the living vein that connects me to my maker, pumping me the stories I need to know about who we have been to one another from the beginning of time and who we are now and who we shall be when time is no more. about who we have been to one another, who we are now, and who we shall be. The book of Matthew is a gospel that's written to Jewish communities. And its purpose, its main purpose, is to convince Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Lord. Because they have a lot of questions about who Jesus is. But it's not just after Jesus that people have these questions. During Jesus' life, the Jews had these questions. And they were always trying to trap Jesus, always trying to ask Jesus questions where they could get Jesus in a pickle, in a predicament to trick him. So he'd have to say it's one way or another. And there are mainly two groups. The Pharisees ask a lot of questions and the Sadducees ask a lot of questions. Because if they can get Jesus to nail himself down, to say one thing, he will demonstrate to them like what side he's on, whose side he's on. Is it this or that? Yes or no? And we live in the same kind of world where everybody just wants to nail your position down. And Jesus is constantly having to work around not who he thinks he is, but what they think the Bible is. Because almost every question that the Pharisees and Sadducees ask of Jesus is one that's rooted in their own text. So in Matthew 22, there are two stories back to back about these groups coming to Jesus. And this is how Matthew tells that story. He says, at that, the Pharisees left. They determined to trap this Jesus in his own words, hang him by his own rope, you might say. They sent a batch of students to him along with a group that was loyal to Herod. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and you tell the truth about the way of God. We know you don't cotton to public opinion, which I think is a phrase we ought to bring back. Nobody cottons, no one says that anymore. And they say, and that is why we trust you and want you to settle something for us. Should we God's chosen people pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knew these men were out to trap him. Jesus says, you hypocrites, why do you show up here with such a transparent trick? Bring me a coin you would use to pay tax. Someone handed him a denarius. Jesus fingered the coin. Jesus says, of whom is this a portrait? And who owns this inscription? Caesar. Well then, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And those who had come hoping to trick Jesus were confounded and amazed. And they left him and went away. That same day, 
a band of Sadducees, a sect of Jewish aristocrats who, among other things, did not expect a resurrection or anticipate any sort of future at all, put their own question to Jesus. Teacher, the law of Moses teaches that if a married man dies with no children, then his brother must marry the widow and father children in his brother's name. We've talked about this before. This is a kinsman redeemer. It actually exists to protect women who had no rights and no way to earn a living, that someone would take care of them. They could have children. They go on, now we know of a family of seven brothers. The eldest brother married and died, and since he had no children, the next brother married his widow. And shortly thereafter, that second brother died, and the next until there were seven marriages with the same woman. Eventually, the wife died. I'd imagine so. So now, teacher, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Will she have seven husbands since they were each married to her? You know neither God's scriptures, Jesus says, nor God's power. And so your assumptions are all wrong. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the messengers of heaven. A key to this resurrected life can be found in the words of Moses, which you do claim to read. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Our God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And again, the crowd was amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. A group of Pharisees met to consider new questions that might trip up Jesus. A legal expert thought of one that would certainly stump him. The Pharisees aren't actually interested in Jesus' take on taxes. And the Sadducees are asking questions about a resurrection that they don't believe in. Like this, this is a willful misinterpretation of Scripture. It's wanting to use Scripture to get what you want. And guess what? Every one of us has done this. That we have all and everyone that we know have found something in Scripture that says what we want it to say, not because it says it, but because we want it to say it. The founders of America found slavery in the Scriptures. The Nazis found exterminating the Jewish population in the Scriptures. Nearly every atrocity that has ever happened, someone found it in the scriptures. And we aren't any different because oftentimes we run into a crisis in life and we're not all that fired up about what the scriptures say. Jesus is very harsh on the sins that we dislike, and he's very gentle with our own sins. 
that God is pretty judgmental about people that we don't like, but he really loves the people that we like. This, this sin over here that I am immersed in isn't nearly as bad as the one that you're doing. And I get it. Like there's a part of us that's always picking and choosing what we like in Scripture and what we don't like in Scripture. And to add to that that Jesus is approached first by the Pharisees and they have a question and then approached by the Sadducees and their question and you don't have two people coming to Jesus. You have two groups of people coming to Jesus. Because the reality is that whatever it is you want to do with the scriptures, there are plenty of people who will tell you you are exactly right. Like come over and be with our group because we've got the right take on scripture. So it doesn't matter what you do with your mouth or what you do with your body. It doesn't matter how you spend your money. Because we're all, we're all on the same page about that. And that group over there, they're just conservative or they're just liberal. We all have our own ways of having the Bible do what it is we want it to do. And Jesus knows this. So he responds by saying something they hadn't expected. And he says, you neither know the scriptures nor God's power. And we might need to pause there for a moment because many of us, without even realizing it, without thinking, we have separated, we have divorced God's scriptures from God's power. And they always go together. And that's why, that's why Jesus says, God is not interested in the dead, but the living. And what he's pointing us to is this text, this Bible that we have received. It's about your living, a guide for the way you live. And not a guide in the sense of an instruction manual, but this story of how God has interacted with and loved and come to cherish his creation and how to best respond to that love. The Bible tells us in this life who we are. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. She says, the Bible also teaches us how to imagine ourselves. In a world where we are offered so many unsolicited definitions of ourselves, it is easy to forget who we are. First, there are all the voices that come to us from outside ourselves, describing us as successful or failures based on our looks, our performances, our incomes. Then there are the voices that come to us from inside ourselves, reminding us that we will never be never do, never have. No one has ever explained to my satisfaction where this relentlessly critical chorus comes from. 
but it never seems to tire of telling me how clumsy, lazy, weak, spoiled, thick-headed, ridiculous, and doomed to failure I am. There are some days when it all sounds true, but there are others when I recognize the voice of the tempter and I am able to fight back. You have overstated your case. I am able to say you have gone too far. While there is a splinter of truth in all your accusations, you have missed the central truth. God made me and God does not make trash. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that God can make a human being out of a pile of dirt, that God can make a barren old couple the proud parents of a chosen people, that God can heal the sick and feed the hungry and raise the dead. If I believe that, then I cannot also believe myself or anyone else to be a lost cause, nor can I believe only what my culture tells me about myself. The Bible gives me another authority to consult. When the culture treats me as if I am, if all I am good for is to produce or to consume, the Bible invites me to love. When the culture encourages me to think of myself as a rugged individualist, the Bible calls me to be a neighbor. When the culture conditions me to become a spectator on life, the Bible bids me to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with my God. Over and over, the Bible offers me an alternative vision, not only of myself, but also of other people and of the whole world. Sometimes it seems far-fetched, but other times it seems truer than what is supposed to be true. So here's the deal. There have always been And there will always be people who want to reduce the scriptures to facts and figures and data and dates. In fact, when I went to seminary, one of the classes that everyone has to take, one of the first classes that everyone has to take is systematic theology. And that's where they give you all of the ologies. Theology, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, and on and on and on they go. But come to find out, the Bible actually doesn't come that way. They don't open the Bible and say, I need to know about salvation, so let me turn to S for soteriology. Or that I feel the need for community, so let me figure out what I can learn about ecclesiology. Like, I want to know about the Holy Spirit, so let me figure out pneumatology real quick. The Bible comes as this story of God interacting and loving His creation. The Bible is not true because it can be dissected. The Bible is true because the Bible tells the truth about you, about me, about our appetites and desires that lead us astray 
and get us in trouble. It tells the truth about how we were created and the beauty that we are capable of. It tells the truth about finding and loving someone deeply. It tells the truth about how we engage with those that God blesses us with in our family, how to honor our mothers and fathers. It tells the truth about finding meaning and purpose. It reminds us that we're not sitting around making up definitions of justice and mercy. That we didn't just come up with why we should feed people at the border or help them get a shower at home. The Bible tells us the truth about us. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. She says, my relationship with the Bible is not a romance, but a marriage. And one I am willing to work on in all the usual ways, by living with the text day in and day out, by listening to it and talking back to it, by making sure I know what is behind the words it speaks to me and being certain I have heard it properly, by refusing to distance myself from the parts of it that I do not like or understand, by letting my love for it show up in the everyday acts of my life. The Bible is not an object for me. It's a partner whose presence blesses me, challenges me, and affects everything I do. What if that is what all of this is about? That this collection of documents that has become so familiar to us is inviting us to be its partner and revealing a story of God's great love for us. So this week, I spent some time at the fount of all knowledge, which is Twitter. And I saw this text, this tweet from the Atheist Forum. It said, Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, one light year equal, equals approximately six trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. I might have to start following the Atheist Forum because they got it right. That all of this, that when you open your Bible, as fraught as that is for many of us who are trapped in the hermeneutical circle, that in it, God is telling you a story of the way God wants to live life with you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, 
please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.